Gary Shaw. I'm Isabel Faria. I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Practical Neoplatonism. In this episode, Greg, Isabel, and I talked about Plato's Symposium, what it has to do with Neoplatonism and theurgy, and especially what Plato has to say about our own romantic relationships with beautiful bodies or philosophical beauty, I suppose. It was really interesting chat, and I'll be thinking about some of these ideas for a while, especially this notion of creativity as a form of reproduction, but especially um, the way that the creative and reproductive process happens on levels other than the physical. That's something that'll give me uh, something to think about for a while, especially the uh, intellectual and linguistic levels of the reproduction of ideas and, uh, and creativity within the mind. So as always, it was a great pleasure, and uh, I hope you will enjoy it too. Um, all right, so you suggest that, that maybe we could start by talking about um, something at least that I might have read into the symposium as theurgic, and mm-hmm. um, there is stuff. Uh, actually, this um, as a part of this dialogue, uh, I've got my copy here, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, if I could refer to it, um, it's where Diatima is instructing Socrates about the nature of, of love. And um, I just love the way, I mean, I don't know why people don't think of Plato as, as really kind of a funny guy, because he's, he's very playful in, in, his, um, in his dialogues. But this, is, um, this part is about how, yeah, it's on 206. Um, at C all the way to 206E. Um, so I'm just going to read you uh, the beginning of it and the end of it okay. and, uh-huh. and tell you what I made of it. Um, they're talking about the nature of love. And um, uh, she says, this is the object of love in view of that. How do people pursue it if they are truly in love? What do they do? Um, she's asking Socrates. What do they do with the eagerness and zeal we call love? What's the real purpose of it? Can you say? And Socrates replies, well, if I could, I wouldn't be your student, filled with admiration for your wisdom and trying to learn these things. She said, well, I'll tell you. Uh, it's giving birth in beauty, uh, whether in body or in soul. And he replies, it would take divination to figure out what you mean, because I'm clueless. You know, as mm-hmm. to what she means by that. And she goes on to talking about how it's an immortal thing for a mortal animal to, to give birth and so on and so forth. And then at the bottom of her speech, she says, you see, Socrates, what love wants is not beauty as you think it is. Well, what is it then, he, he asks her. And she says, reproduction and birth in beauty. Um, and to me, um, that's a very significant piece of the dialogue because the whole thing has been set up, especially in Diotima's speech, that everyone's everything and everything in life is being drawn to beauty, like it's the magnet pulling everything towards it. But what we really want isn't beauty. We want the experience of reproduction and giving birth in beauty. And to my mind, what that suggests to me is that um, what we really want is to be creative. And what whether it's giving birth physically or giving birth to a piece of music or giving birth to a poem or giving birth to a beautiful idea, that's what makes us feel divine more than anything else. So that's what allows us to participate in divinity is to be creative. And at least that's my, my reading of it. And I make that, um, I make the connection then that um, what theurgy ultimately is which is divine activity, is to participate in demiurgy, which is the creation of the universe and the cosmos. And so to the degree that a person has tapped into their deepest well of creativity, they are participating in the demiurge, they are doing what Diotima 
in the sense that what we what we really want is to be uh, reproductive and to and give birth in beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the spin I take on it, and and I like it. Um, but but it's basically suggesting that the the way that human beings become divine is not by reaching some sort of safe harbor of equanimity and stillness, but by being creative, creative activity. And that would include anybody. That could include an artist. That could include a mason making a beautiful sidewalk. That could include uh, somebody singing to their children or setting up a game. Creativity. Um, And I, I basically believe that's the case. I think that's when people are the happiest when they're being creative. So that's my pitch. That's everything I know in life right there. <laughs> um, really, I know. I kind of overstated it. But that's that's one thing I take out of the symposium. There's so many different things, though, in there. And we could let's talk all over it. Mm-hmm. And that what you were saying sort of, well, it relates to the part when she talks about how love is, um, sort of the medium through um, between non-being and being yep. and the act of creation sort of mimics the same thing that love does uh, yeah I mean it sews the world together mm-hmm. it sews the um, you know uh, it sews the gods and humans together it, it's, the, it, it's the mediation between beauty and ugliness between immortality and mortality all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's the mediation. And Socrates, well, we can talk about Socrates, but um, I think Plato means to show us that Socrates is an embodiment of Eros um, because he has the fa- same features that Eros has. It was also, yes, it exactly. seems, yeah, he's not attractive. It's, that seems like an the, important detail. The whole how, how love is the, right. the son of Eros um, like and Pania. Yeah, mm-hmm. plenty and and poverty, right? And yeah, and he's he, he that that description's on two o three d, and and I think more than one scholar's pointed out that this description of Eros is also a description of Socrates. Mm. Um, he's always poor. He's not delicate and beautiful. Mm-hmm. He's tough and shriveled, shoeless and homeless, um, sleeping on people's doorsteps, roadsides, but he's also a schemer after what's beautiful and good he's brave impetuous intense and awesome hunter weaving snares resourceful so he has the side of his mother which is poverty and he also has the side of his father which is resourcefulness at least that's mm-hmm. diatima's take on it they also seem to me to have a really interesting relationship um similar to the way that uh uh, was it Socrates or, or someone else at the party has argued that the best kind of love is between an older man and a younger man? Like they yeah. do, they do kind of have that teacher-student relationship, uh, uh, like the imbalance of wisdom, and uh, and and I, I wondered to what degree. Uh, I, I mean, she's also um, remarkable as the only female voice in the conversation, and um, and so it's it may be reflect and wonder on how much she herself is meant to uh, serve as a sort of icon of Sophia or, or wisdom, you know, as the yeah. object of his love. I think she is a, a sort of symbolic character. I mean, even though most of these figures are historical figures, of course, Plato uses them in a, in a sort of a, a creative way mm-hmm. to make his philosophic point but i think she is more a uh, pure invention mm-hmm. I, uh, than than the others are and so yeah i think she's an icon of wisdom for him does her name itself uh, have any significance yeah it means glory to god from the land of prophecy wow <laughs> uh, diotima uh, <laughs> honor to god the dios and and then mantinea it comes from mantike which is uh prophecy and Mm. uh, to prophesy to divinate and to divine yeah Mm -hmm. divination is Mm -hmm. mantinea so it's playing on the on the meaning of um, honoring god and divining 
Well, and then there's a kind of a climax in her speech where she um, presents the information that she's sharing as uh, an initiation into sacred mysteries. Um, the latter part? Yes, yeah. I think that, that uh, where does it start? Yeah. Um, it starts at 210 B. 210B, there it is. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh, um, yeah, she starts off saying, even you, Socrates, could probably come to be initiated into these rites of love. Um, yeah. So, and then, um, you know, the language that she uses uh, is one of ascent, and it's proceeding in stages through uh, 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 different uh, experiences uh, and refinements of perception until arriving at this final, like, vision of... Um, I don't know, the epiphany. And yeah. I wasn't sure if I really got it, what that epiphany was supposed to be. And so I was hoping you might help me understand, like, yeah. what's the big deal? I don't know if I was entirely persuaded that, uh, uh, you know, the idea is that you're supposed to move in your youth from loving beautiful uh, bodies and eventually learn um, what that uh, that all of the bodies are instances of one uh, kind of archetype mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and learn to love whatever is behind that. And so I just don't know if I understand what the, what the real end goal of that, you know, uh, moment of pure vision at the top of the mountain was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking, um, Isabel, um, the woman that you have worked with, uh, the mystic, the poet, um, mm-hmm. Doesn't she talk about love and ascent to God in yeah. her, her work? What does she say about it? Well, she, in some ways, she goes through this, a similar ladder um, that Diatima describes. Because and what was her name again? Sor Juana. Sor Juana. And, uh, uh, and we're talking about the uh, dream, her dream. Mm-hmm, the first dream. The first dream, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, well, I... Diatima's ladder sort of starts with you need to love um, beauty in any shape, right? Yeah. And that sort of earthly beauty. Right. And then you move on to the beauty of um, laws and institutions. Yeah, eventually, yeah. You, you, you also love people's character, their souls, but then you love laws and institutions mm-hmm. as you go up. And then the knowledge. sciences. Mm-hmm, right. Art knowledge. Right. And then the science of beauty everywhere, which is knowledge. Um, and then you finally get to the form of beauty, which is the, the end goal, right? And you're supposed to ascend through this ladder, through divine and pure love of yeah, yeah, the knowledge of beauty, right? That's the model of it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and, and mm-hmm. does she then, I, I, I just imagined that... Uh, Sohana would have written about a process like this too because yeah. it's so prevalent in, in the language of the mystics and mm-hmm. she seemed to fit that yeah definitely because even the way the that poem starts is with her she's asleep which is already you know a form of prophecy in mm-hmm. some ways and the dream is that her soul comes out of her body and starts traveling and ascending out from Earth, and so out of Earth into sort of space, and it's trying to reach the sun, which represents, I guess, pure knowledge, you could say. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And the way she has to climb to get there is through, basically, the, it's the lo- love of knowledge, and her soul passes through the Library of Alexandria, hmm. and... Um, through basically references, mostly classical, of myths and, yep, a lot of things like that. And then at the end, she tries to reach the sun, and instead, she's blinded by it and then wakes up. Oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I, I need to send to you... Um, um, there's a passage from the Neoplatonist Damascius who writes about the journey to the absolute 
and he said that um, at first when we see the sun from a distance we can see it um, but the closer we get to it the less we can see until eventually we see nothing at all because we ourselves have become the light you know in, in other words you can't see it because you are it mm -hmm. um, you become you become it and mm -hmm. and in a sense being blinded in that sense is sort of transcends into a deeper kind of vision than seeing it from a distance that's what it reminded me of I, I, I'll um, I'll send you the passages on that though. You yeah, might, that sounds really. You might find it interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, with um, that her ladder, because um, she does talk about like ascending stairs. Um, for me, the metaphor that works well for me is to think of beauty as a magnet, and that um, that we're drawn to it, and that there's certain things that that um, transmit the magnetism in a more and more intense way. And at first it's, you know, like you see, you know, some picture in a penthouse magazine and you start to get aroused by that. So there's a little bit of a draw there. Okay. I mean, that, you know, that's the most base level. That's where Alcibiades is functioning most of the time. <laughs> but then, um, you know, as you go further and further, you might hear some amazing musical piece that just puts you into a rapturous state. And then... The, the beauty is being the magnetism of the beauty is being revealed even more then until eventually as you put it uh, Isabel you go through this kind of awareness and knowledge and from laws and, and, and sciences into I think the way he describes it or she does it's like an ocean you go into like an ocean of beauty um, and there's no more distinction between you and it and you can't measure it or evaluate it because the boundary between what it is and what you are, it's no longer a dual state. You've kind of entered into a, a fusion with beauty. Um, to my, and so the, the, the image I like to use of that is that if you've ever played with magnets as a kid, you know, a really strong magnet, you put a pin on it. Mm -hmm. um, if you lay the pin on a, a magnet long enough and then you take the pin and hold it up to other pins, it's a magnet because it's absorbed the magnetism of the magnet. And I suggest to my students that that's what Socrates is. Mm -hmm. He's he, he's moved into that absolute beauty. He's been so saturated with it. And so when he comes to exchange, you know, his, his conversation, you know, when he converses with these guys, they're so attracted to him, they go out of their minds. You know, as soon as he starts talking to them, he puts them into an altered state. He's saturated with the beauty of the absolute beauty, and it's pouring out of him. And so he's, he's sort of like this, he, move, he moves people up, and he's also moving it down from the top down and bringing them from the bottom up just in his very person. He's sort of a mediator figure. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, if I think of it, uh, Alex, mm -hmm. experientially, I think of Socrates as, I think he's... Plato's trying to present him as the initiate of, of uh, the ascent into absolute beauty. And the result of it is, is that it looks like he's in love with pretty boys, as Alcibiades says, uh -huh. but he really could, couldn't care less how physically pretty they are mm -hmm. because he's interested in a deeper kind of beauty. And, and then that scrambles old Alcibiades' mind because he thinks it's all about the external beauty. Mm -hmm. um, I love Alcibiades' speech. I think it reveals a lot uh, about how Plato wants us to see Socrates. Um, but what I do you think? What do you, does that magnet stuff work for you, or what? Do, what do you make of it, Alex? <sighs> you know, you playing with it. Mm -hmm. um, does I, it I, seem I, too I, puritanical? I think I'm still kind of caught up on what I perceive as a sort of pressure to renounce uh yeah. physical attraction to physical beauty and i yes, don't see yes. why it has to be like this uh, uh either or kind of thing yeah. you know why right. you can't right. uh, uh acknowledge that uh physical beauty is be is beautiful and there are also other kinds of beauty rather than saying like creating this uh hierarchy of just like it's like competition where uh which one's better which one's higher 
Yep. I feel the same way. It's sort of like you have to sublimate those lower desires in order to reach the absolute. And so it's almost this puritanical monkish kind of um, ascetic movement. And mm-hmm. that's how it's been interpreted by a lot of people. But at the same time, I think we can uh, – I, I, I anticipate we would all agree that like – that. Uh, uh, I, I think didn't the Greeks have this idea that uh, beautiful people were actually like better – you know, like in in like they actually were more beautiful because their uh, uh, self was uh, good in a way that less attractive. Like that, there was a correlation between your like objective state of being and your appearance. Um, and uh, um, except Socrates seems uh, to sort of contradict that. <laughs> and I think that that's I mean, something. That yes, I, they did generally. Yes, yes, yes. I think you're right. And that, I think that that, Socrates was an ugly dude. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I That's feel a, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it's like the word "cacos" can mean both evil and ugly. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and "kalos" can mean beautiful and and well, agos, agathos, and "kalos" are always going together, uh, good and beauty for the for the Greeks. Yeah, it's like the ancient version. So in of general, the yeah, prosperity gospel. Pro- <laughs> oh dear, maybe. Um, I was thinking, though, because uh, I wrestled with that, too, quite a bit, um, Alex. And, and you know, I teach the symposium to undergraduates. And the last thing they want to be told is, oh, you have to give up all physical attraction <laughs> in order to get to the absolute. I mean, I because they're, every weekend is dedicated towards, um, you know, getting a very specific kind of, of desire met. It's physical. So um, they're not really eager to hear that. Um mm-hmm. And I think that in the Phaedrus, um, Plato also talks about erotic madness. And, and he seems to leave the door open to the idea that you could develop a relationship with another person that can be used as a kind of vehicle to take you to the absolute. Um, I guess you could call it sort of like, um, let's say you fall in love with somebody. And they, it's reciprocal that the two of you can use that mutual attraction to take each other into deeper and deeper levels of kind of ecstatic bliss. That's a very yoga like idea. Rumi and Shams, you could say. I don't know what. Yeah. I want to interject to you as I'm like uh, the, the, it's an interesting uh, segue for I was going to mention that uh, to Isabel that I had a dream last night. Uh, I don't know what it means yet, but I had a dream that. Uh, we were in a yoga studio in Manhattan, and you took me downstairs to uh, another, st- like a bookstore, a couple doors down. Um, that was all. All the books were about UFOs. So <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but maybe we'll, maybe it will come up in the course of our conversation. <laughs> I love oh, interesting. That. So, um, <laughs> uh. But uh, um, yeah, what I was what I was gonna say about about beauty and the um, you know the ascent away from the physical towards the abstract. Um, what, yeah. Uh, what was I gonna say about that? Oh, that that I do feel like um, it's easy to see how um, you know we have celebrities now that are uh, supposed to be. Uh, the, like a lot of them are only famous because they were attractive uh, and we can see that they're not that doesn't make them better people um, and I think that uh, uh, it's easy to um, accept that proposition that just being physically beautiful doesn't make you a better person um, but then uh, shifting that same kind of uh, uh, intense uh, I don't know magnetism to an abstract idea is something I find, I don't know, um, uh, impractical maybe, or unpersuasive. Mm-hmm. Like it's something that I can understand intellectually without feeling the same kind of emotional, uh, intensity. You know, um, a lot of what you're talking about, Alex, really, it seems like it can only really be explored through practice on your own, sure, and and um, um, 
like let's say that you're um, drawn to a spiritual teacher and there's an attraction to that spiritual teacher mm -hmm. um, and that's a kind of eros it's not that you want to um, you know put your hand in his pants or something like that but but you're you're nevertheless drawn to the person um, and it's palpable and you can feel it and it's and it's even sensible you know I mean there could even be a sensuous quality to it without it being sexual, that you could really be attracted to the presence of somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's erotic too. And I think that's part of the whole Platonic eros. And I think that that's the, the sense in which Plato wants to invite us to see Socrates, yeah. that he had this magnetism and they were just drawn to him because he opened them up. So the question is, what's he opening them up to? And it's their mm -hmm. depth. Yeah, at least that's how I imagine it. It also reminds me of uh, uh, some stories that I've heard from the Sufis about an experience that they would have over time where um, they would be following their uh, their sheikh for years, then decades, but then one day they would wake up and have this uh Epiphany, I guess, or a, um, a a major turning point in their lives where they looked at themselves in the mirror and they saw the, their shake looking back at them, and they realized, you know, they had become him, you know. And so, so that reminds me of what you were talking about about the magnet and the, 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 the and slowly, yeah. uh, I guess, in, in Sufism they call it, I think, fana, like uh, the obliteration yes. or yeah. erasure. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. So, you know, uh, speaking of sheikhs, I, I have a colleague at my college who happens to be a, a Sufi. Oh, yeah. And he told me that when he was initiated or was seeking to be um, brought into the sheikh's community, um, the sheikh looked at him and said, we don't want good people. We're not looking for good, nice people. We want people who, who know that they're not, not good. In other words, you know, like you have to know your dark shit. You know, we're not here to, to you know, present kind of like Hallmark card, flower, you're the pure one sort of approach. And I thought, God, that sounds fantastic. What kind of a shake is that? Yeah. You know, don't don't bullshit me. Don't come in here with all your like I'm so holy bullshit. You know, um, keep it real. I, I just thought that was a great story. So many different Sufi stories are fantastic. Yeah. You know, you hear about. Um, so did you also want to talk about um, either Aristophanes or you also mentioned, was it Alcibiades? I like Alcibiades, Alcibiades but you mentioned yeah. Aristophanes. Both of you did. and what? Yeah, go for that. What? Um, I, I delight in hearing people talking about uh, Aristophanes' speech. What, everybody loves it. What do you <laughs> like about it? I mean, one of the most, my, my most uh, uh, memorable uh, encounter with it, with it was when we were taking this uh, class together with uh, Helena Foley at, at Barnard, and uh, uh, she brought in a clip from Hedwig and the Angry Itch and showed us this, you know, the song about uh, that's based on this uh, about the the origin of love. Uh, so beautiful. Oh, really? Yeah. You mean what? Tell me, how is that? Um, re is that represented in some? What's Hedwig? I don't know that. I've never seen the movie. Have you seen it? I, I saw it after that class. So it's been a long time. But it's about, um, well, this person in Germany who's transgender, mm -hmm. right? And he gets, well, she gets surgery and the surgery is botched. Mm -hmm. So that's the yeah. angry inch. Well, that's why the, the Hedwig becomes angry? Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a little scene in there where they play off this Aristophanes story about the original um, dyads, um, male, 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 female, and mm -hmm. female. And yeah, they're in a rock band and they sing this song and it's called The Origin of Love. Oh, really? And, it's, and it turns into an animation of that part of the symposium. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to use that next time I teach it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's that really good. Fun. So anyways, uh, uh, there's a beautiful scene in, in he Hedwig and the Angry Inch 
about it uh where they uh, they, they basically Edward and the angry inch yeah and 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 uh and she just uh she sings the story that uh that alcibiades tells uh, alcibiades tells about the origin of love uh, aristophanes yeah did i say uh, yeah okay so that aristophanes yeah, says, mm-hmm. yeah. um i love the speech and one of the things keep going one of the things that really stood out for me in this reading um was the idea just because we've been talking about the Quora as a third thing? Um, yeah, I, I noticed a few times in this dialogue where that comes up. It comes up in Aristophanes, the story of uh, uh, the origins of love, and it also came up in uh, Diatima's uh, uh, speech where she talks about um, the third thing between wisdom and ignorance. Yep, mm-hmm. that's love. Yeah, yep, that's right. love. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, yeah, so it, 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 the Korah being the third thing too. Um, the Korah is also that which allows the forms to become manifest in the world. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, the Korah is, is functioning in a, some way similar to Eros in that mm-hmm. without it, the world would come into existence. Mm-hmm. Really be held together or it wouldn't appear to be without the Korra constantly providing the substance. And I think it. that both of the two extremes in both instances are associated with male and female uh, I guess genders um, both with uh, uh, what the uh, Korra and here with wisdom and ignorance. I mean I guess but if wisdom was a woman then I guess man would have to be the ignorance. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it works that well there, because Cora is all given all those feminine characteristics: nurse, mother, mm-hmm. and so on. Whereas, oh, right, um, right, right. Uh, yeah, you know what? A Plutarch um, plays with it as um, that he compares it to the um, Egyptian um, mythology, and he, mm-hmm. he refers to Osiris as the mm-hmm. as the forms. Um, Isis as the material substrate or Korah and Horus, which is the son of the two of them, being the manifest world. Mm. You know, he's just playing with the myth and making it fit into the Platonic um, dialogue. But uh, there you've got a male, a female, and a, a child. child. Did mm-hmm. I read? Did I, did I just read in this dialogue also about uh, the idea that the moon is the child of the sun and the earth? Uh, well, in Aristophanes' piece, um, okay. it's it's that it's the part that has both male and female. I mean, that would be that I think um, the Earth is the female female, the Sun is the male male, and the and the um, uh, the male female dyad is associated with the Moon because it takes and it receives the light and also gives it. Mm-hmm. So they associate masculinity with the donating of light mm-hmm. and ma- femininity with the reception of light. Mm-hmm. Um, and in antiquity, they kind of used maleness and femaleness to represent mm-hmm. that. Well, that scene. has a really interesting correlation also with wisdom as like the uh, a, a kind of light that's transmitted from the uh, uh, one who has it to the recipient who's in a feminine role. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, um, go ahead, Isabel. Yeah, I guess it could, in some ways, maybe explain why, um, Socrates is speaking as if he were a woman in that part, because at that moment, he's both. Oh, that's interesting. Male and female. He, um, he's, yeah, he's giving voice to the voice of a woman, Mm -hmm. to the wisdom of a woman. I never really thought about that. That's interesting. In uh, just in terms of playing with, um, you know, maleness and femaleness, um, in, in a curious kind of way, the highest state that a person could achieve would be the state of being receptive to the forms. Um, you know, uh, and so in a sense. Um, if you associate being receptive with femininity, um, that would be the the highest um, state. You know, a lot of times the way that masculinity and femininity are used is like um, masculinity is spiritual and femininity is material. You know, 
that's in antiquity. A lot of times that's how it's presented, even in Gnostic stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, in a sense, psychologically, um, the only thing that receives the highest is is what is receptive to it. Mm -hmm. So um, I like to think of the... And the Christian mystic said the soul has to become the Virgin Mary. Mm. You know, uh, it has to be receptive to the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of like the idea of becoming woman in order to become very spiritual, so symbolically speaking. If uh, Diatima is a prophetess, who or what is she uh, a messenger of? Let's just call it Apollonian wisdom something like that i don't know i'm just i'm just you know <laughs> picking out of a, a list of that fits with plato you know yeah um it's, not, it sounds I'm, it's a greek sort of tradition also Apollonian. yeah pythagoras also you know yeah and you know apollo is the god at delphi and mm -hmm. so he speaks through the prophet right and all that yeah it would align with what you were saying about the sun and the moon and the earth. Yeah, because Apollo is associated more or less with the sun. The sun, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And Apollo is representing the forms in some ways as the sun, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a, uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't make a thesis of it myself. Yeah. But, you know, I would just pick pick a god out of a hat. I would pick Apollo for who she's <laughs> transmitting. Um, so what about Alcibiades' speech? I just think it's like um, the coolest speech in it because of what he says about Socrates and their relationship is so uncomfortable. And this comes at the very end? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they've just been lifted into this exalted uh, state by Socrates who's been recounting Diotima's ladder of love or going up to higher and higher levels of beauty and then you know if anybody could become divine this is the way to do it and everybody's like oh fuck you know everybody's just having this spiritual orgasm yeah, yeah. with Socrates have. and then Alcibiades stumbles in supported by a couple of buddies and he's drunk out of his mind okay mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you know He's like the ultimate stud of Athens, yeah. And he's kind of a bad boy. And he has this very, very um, interesting relationship with Socrates. He doesn't even know he's there at first, and then when he sees him, he gets all flustered. And, and Socrates says, "Protect me from this crazy man," because you know, ever since. But he says something. Interesting. He says, "Ever since I fell in love with him, he Alcibiades won't give me any peace." So Socrates admits that he fell in love with Alcibiades, and that unglued Alcibiades. And Alcibiades then couldn't get Socrates out of his mind. And if Socrates talked to anybody else, Alcibiades got super jealous and made a big scene. And I mean, you know, it's just like a catty little relationship that they had. And that's at the very beginning of, of uh, before Alcibiades even starts to give his speech. Um, mm. I just love it because it's so sort of soap opera like, you know. It's like uh, what the Housewives of Atlanta or yeah, yeah. Las Vegas. Then <laughs> um, doesn't he say at some point that he, if he weren't so drunk, he would have already stopped talking? What, like telling he, the story of how him and Socrates? Yeah, he reveals it all, and, it, and it's <laughs> largely because he's plastered. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of praising Eros like everybody else, he says. Um, how could I praise anybody but Socrates when I'm in his presence? But what's interesting is that he's praising Socrates. Everybody's praised Eros up to now. But really, I think what Plato's doing is playing with this idea that Socrates is the image of Eros, which is, makes it all more appropriate that uh, Alcibiades would praise Socrates. Um, and he does it in such interesting ways, you know. What does he say? He compares him to a statue, mm. but but if you open the statue up, you see these treasures inside. Um, he just looks like an ordinary guy talking about ordinary things, but really, if you really listen to him, he completely blows your mind. And then he, you know, he he says, "Look, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't already know." He he drives us all crazy. You know, my heart starts to beat faster when I'm around him. I get all sweaty. I go crazy. I can't live with him or without him. 
I mean, he's he's beside himself, and I love it. You know, he's just he's completely unglued in front of his guru, really. Yeah. Is kind of how it is. Yeah, and oh. he he compares Socrates to is it a satyr at the end? Yeah, uh, it's in, er, early on he compares him to a satyr. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, uh, he looks like Silenus or Marcius, the flute player. Mm-hmm. Which is also sort of like this sort of god, but not really. Right, One of the god gods, sort of like love. And he's also exactly. he's also associated with uh, Dionysus, right. and and they're at a drinking party. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and what else? And then he starts to recount um, his attempt to seduce Socrates. You may, and he said, "Look, I thought this guy. You know, he's so vain. That's the thing about Alcibiades. He he's the hot." Hottest guy in Athens. Okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants his ass. Women and men. He's got a lot of money. He's privileged. And and he thinks, well, Socrates is definitely going to want him. He's like Ryan Gosling of ancient Athens. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, he's just totally got it all. And so he comes on to Socrates and he figures, well, you know, he's going to want me. and um, And he does want him. You know, Socrates is attracted to him. But not for the reasons that Alcibiades thinks. Alcibiades thinks it's for my sweet ass, and he even gets him to wrestle with him out in the in the gymnasium, and they're naked because that's how they wrestle, you know. And, and, and the gym, work. huh? And it doesn't work. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. He can't. He can't get old Socrates aroused and interested that way. And what? And then he and he invites him over for dinner. And gets him to stay so late that Socrates um, can't go home because it's too late. And and um, so okay, you want to stay the night? And he figures, okay, now he's going to make the move. And he and then Alcibiades says, well, I know you want me, and look, I know that that you know you're, you've got all this juice going for you, Socrates. That um, if you want to make the exchange, I'm ready. You know, and 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 Socrates says. <laughs> You really think I'm a fool, don't you, Alcibiades? Because if you really think I'm made of gold, like you think I am, you're you're basically asking me to exchange gold for brass. Because you're not gold like I am, so that's not really a fair exchange. I'm not going to go down for you, you know. I'm not going to have sex with you, Alcibiades. I'm not going to get intimate that way. And uh, blows Alcibiades' mind, and he said, "I slept with him all night." It was like sleeping with my brother or my father. Socrates never made a move. Uh, he just needs to find another guy who looks like him, and he'll be fine. <laughs> You're too practical, Alan. Well, there may, be, there may be some point to what you're saying, but, but you know, it's Plato having fun with this whole idea yeah. that, that it's, you know, it's not – you don't want to just exhaust your arrows on the physical level but you want to sublimate it up to something deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Alex. You were saying you, you don't want to sort of shorts. Um, you didn't want to n- not allow the physical as part of the you know yeah. experience of being human. And, and I'm with you on that. But then the question is, if the person is only focused on the physical... And and there's a sort of what you might call an Alcibiadean shallowness about them. Um, then it's sort of like, eh, it does. It's just not quite right. At least that's how Plato seems to be portraying it. I guess it depends on what our mood is, <laughs> and what day of the week it is, and stuff like that. But, Can I ask? Um, is there any uh, um, what symbolism to? Wine or uh, to to drinking, um, the uh, going on in in this in this drinking party. You know, are we meant to understand that as some kind of allegory? Probably. I'm not. I like with the god Dionysus. Maybe, maybe, but uh, uh, I was just thinking of like being drunk on love, or I don't know what other kinds of things you can be drunk on, and that's why I'm asking is if like maybe, because the Sufis definitely use wine as a metaphor, like they were all um, 
you know, uh, observant Muslims and talk about getting drunk on wine, but they're not talking about wine because they don't drink wine, you know? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Um, I, I, I went to a lecture once at, at the Divinity School mm-hmm. of some guy who studied a group of Sufis, mm-hmm. um, and they had incorporated this language of the symposium into their relationships such that they recognized that sometimes an individual would be the beloved and sometimes the individual would be the lover. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and, and that's right out of uh, the first speech of Phaedrus's speech. He's, he talks about people, the younger boy would be the beloved, the pretty boy, mm-hmm. and the older man would be the lover. Mm-hmm. The uh, eromanon would be the, the pretty one who takes the action of the erastes, mm-hmm. the, the lover. Uh, and the Sufi guy said that the, these groups recognize that some people are more on one side of, the, of that polarity than the other. And sometimes the sheikh might be the eromanon and they, they would be attracted to him. And then they learn to, to play with that kind of dynamic. And sometimes the sheikh might be the erastes, the lover, and the disciple would be the beautiful one. And they learn to play with that. In other words, they learn to incorporate these really basic uh, waves of attraction that people have into their spiritual practice. Um, Like, no end of fascination to me, the way that they... Well, I was, I you know, I was a part of a Sufi order for six years, uh, living in this community full time uh, for about half of that time, and I didn't know until years and years and years later that Sufis have sexual practices the same way that, uh, uh, it, as in like uh, Hindu tantra, Hindu and Buddhist tantras, that are, are sexual practices within. Um, the religion. I just didn't know that because I guess apparently it's not something that uh, they would consider any of your business if you weren't married. So why, you know? But but I I, I was I was quite surprised to learn that there is a uh, tr- tradition of what you might call something like sex magic or uh, um, a, a religious sexual practice that is actually um, uh, what uh, experienced uh, in your. Uh, marriage as well as in you know more uh abstract ways mm-hmm. well okay so you know um overall though i think oh there's one thing that we didn't mention and i think it's really pretty significant um about the symposium and that is that um when you when you study um, Socrates or Plato, everybody knows that Socrates is famous for saying, "All I know is that I know nothing." Right, right. Um, but it's in the Symposium that he admits to what he knows. He says, "I only know one thing, and that is." And in the Greek, it's "ta erotica," that is the things that have to do with eros. That's the only thing he says that he understands. Now, to my mind. That suggests that for Plato, if Socrates is the exemplary kind of soul, probably the most important thing for any of us to understand is Eros and to be familiar with our erotic uh, part of ourselves. It's the only thing he understands. You know, theory of forms, all all the rest of it's just, you know, out there. The only thing I understand is Eros. That's so interesting. I think fascinating. Yeah. Also, that the Diotima says, uh, when she talks about what the thing that's between wisdom and ignorance, this is in 202A, about halfway through, she says, uh, he says, what's that? And she says, it's judging things correctly without being able to give a reason. That sounds like intuition. You know, that was my first uh, uh, thought when I when I read that this time through was like, uh, it sounds like she's talking about intuitive knowing as uh, uh, the third thing here between wisdom and ignorance. Um, and I wonder what you think yeah, about that. Yeah, that's the in-between, right, 202. It's not ignorance, it's not wisdom, it's in-between. Um, and I think in, in some people's study of the Republic and, and that divided line, they will refer to that as... Um, correct opinion mm-hmm. but I also I kind of like what you're saying about it being um, sort of an intuition um, a right 
kind of, uh, uh, well, somehow, intuition works for me. Um, there, the passage that I wanted to refer to where he says it's the only thing he understands, because I think it's worth uh, um, uh, noticing, is that, um, okay, on 177E, Eric Simicus, the doctor, says, well, why don't we all give a speech in praise of, of Eros? Mm-hmm. And Socrates says, how could I vote no when the only thing I say I understand is the art of love? And that's a translation of ta erotica. Mm. Uh, that art of love is how that um, person translated that Greek. But um, I think it's pretty significant. It's the only thing Socrates says he understands. Doesn't say he knows anything else. Well, and also it seems uh, significant that um, the context is a book in which they are um, praising the god, you know, and that act yeah. that act of praising a deity itself is, uh, I don't know, a form of of worship. And, and I think that isn't there. Uh, a ritualized, you know, element of, of, of worshiping a god, like the the recitation of the god's praise, is an actual religious act. Maybe I think you're right. Um, yeah, like hymning the, the the strengths of the you know the mm-hmm. attributes of the god exactly as a way of, of worshiping. The god. Shiva, Shiva, Adi. 